The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week we're going inside the courtroom to try and understand how evidence and witness testimony is presented and how courtroom strategy can affect a trial's outcome. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Colin Miller, an associate professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. He blogs at Evidence Prof Blog and is one of the hosts of the Undisclosed podcast, the first season of which deep dives into the case against Adnan Saeed that was pushed into the national spotlight by the hit podcast Serial. Colin, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, thanks for having me. So I don't want to spend too much time talking about this particular case up front, but there may actually be some people out there who don't know about Serial or Saeed's case. So can you give our listeners some context by giving them a quick summary of the case, what Serial was and what Undisclosed is and how it came to be? The case against Adnan Sayed, it was for the murder of Heyman Lee in 1999. They were both students at a high school in Baltimore County, Maryland, and the Serial Podcast was an offshoot of This American Life, and it was a weekly examination of the facts, the witness statements, et cetera, that took place, and basically re-examining whether justice was done back in 1999. We then followed that up with Undisclosed, which had more of a legal focus on aspects of the case. And the current status is that at the beginning of February, there is a reopened hearing and appeal where new evidence relating to both the cell tower technology and an alibi witness will be presented. So when you guys decided to start Undisclosed, what was the motivation for you? Because um, it is very much a deep, deep, deep dive into this particular case. Um, now, obviously, there was some interest in the case uh, generated by Serial. But what made you guys want to go even deeper down that rabbit hole? Sure. The genesis of the podcast was that Rabia Chowdhury is one of the hosts. She is the sister of Adnan's best friend. She's the one who brought the case to Sarah Koenig for Serial. She was doing talks around the country about Serial. And the other two hosts were Susan Simpson and myself. We each have blogs, as you noted. And we were writing about developments in the case, updates, legal analysis. And what Rabia realized was that when she was doing talks around the country, most of the audience wasn't aware of these developments, and she thought it would be a great idea to then do a follow-up podcast where we could delve into these issues, the legal issues, new developments, so that people would have a different medium through which to explore aspects of the case. It's one of these times when we get, there's there's the ability to get so much information about something that I think most of us would have just read maybe one or two news articles about in passing and, and have forgotten about. So do you think there's value in the public at large being able to engage with a court case like this at a really kind of detailed level? Absolutely. I've always said that the way that legal reporting has been done it's very much been opaque in the past. As you know, you might read a few newspaper articles about a case, a couple paragraph description, and the entire purpose of having a jury system is to have an educated populace that can go into a courtroom and understand what's going on. And I think that our podcast, other podcasts that have been done, The Making of a Murderer on Netflix, they all allow people to really pull back the curtain and have some transparency about what's being done right and what's being done wrong in the legal system, such that if they're ever asked to serve on a jury, 
they have a better grasp of what they might see in the courtroom. This is the part that I think I find so fascinating about Undisclosed and some of the reaction to it is how, I guess, maybe surprised we are. Maybe maybe we shouldn't be, but how surprised we seem to be at the complexity that really is at the heart of this case, but probably also a lot of other cases that we, I think, dismiss as being kind of a simple open and closed situation. Right. You look at, and it's not just in the legal realm, although tangentially, I guess, you have things like WikiLeaks and Snowden and all these disclosures. And it's all part of the same thing that's going on, this trend of exposing things that people didn't know about the government or institutions before. And yeah, I mean, it's if you don't have a legal background, you would be shocked by so many things that go on every day in the legal system. And it's not just things that are overtly done by the state that are incorrect. It's just the whole nature of Gideon versus Wainwright. It's a Supreme Court case that gave the right to counsel in most criminal cases. And that's led to a public defender system in the country that is really inadequate on many fronts. It's underfunded. It is people handling dozens of cases at the same time. And just to have an understanding, if you enter a courtroom and see this defendant being represented and getting an understanding of the bigger picture of what is and isn't going on in the legal justice system. When someone is called to be on a jury, how much, I guess, is their mind blown or how much of what they anticipate a court case to be like turns out to be entirely different? I guess, I guess what I'm asking is how prepared are we to be on a jury when we're called? I would say very much unprepared. I think Probably what is typical is most people have seen trials presented on TV shows or movies, and the perception of what that is is often very different from the reality. It's often much more technical. It's more protracted. You don't see the type of 30 or 60-minute justice you might see in a popular culture representation of it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that people are not prepared for what they're going to see in, in the courtroom in a typical case. And that's why I think it's so important to educate the public about what you know, they might tend to see when they're there in the courtroom and having to sometimes make decisions about life or death. If you are selected for a jury, is there any type of like crash course that you get on your first day to kind of introduce you to what's going to happen or give you some context around how you're supposed to go about making this decision or what types of weight you should be giving certain types of evidence or certain types of witness testimony? Is there any kind of like jury 101 that happens? Basically, Jury 101 is the judge giving jury instructions, and most jurisdictions have pattern jury instructions, and the judge can either do those word for word or sort of modify them for his own use. And they instruct jurors about things like the definition of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. They tell jurors what they are and are not to consider in rendering the verdict in the case. So there are those jury instructions, but it is, as you say, more in the sense of a crash course as opposed to a comprehensive understanding of exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So what are the standards of reasonable doubt that a jury is supposed to adhere to? Yeah, that's part of the difficulty is that the United States Supreme Court has said that 
the standard of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt defies quantification. And in fact, that any attempt to quantify it by saying beyond a reasonable doubt is 90% certainty that that in fact is unconstitutional and can lead to a verdict being thrown out. Basically, the Supreme Court has said beyond a reasonable doubt is a subjective state of near certitude. What exactly that means, uh, again, that's difficult to say. What it really means is it's up to the individual jurors in the case to decide for themselves what it means. Sometimes there are sort of descriptive definitions given, such as beyond a reasonable doubt is such that in your average life, you would go forward with an important decision, meaning that you lacked reasonable doubt before maybe buying a house or accepting a job. So that's one definition I've seen. But again, there's no quantification. There's no uniformity among courts as to how jurors render that decision. And if you're a member of a jury and you are in the courtroom and there's something going on uh, and you're confused about what's happening or you're confused about the way information is presented, is the jury able to ask questions or are they sort of just there as uh, passive observers until it comes time to render their verdict? Yeah, we can address that on a few fronts. Most jurisdictions say, in fact, that jurors can't take notes during trial, that that distracts their observation of the witnesses. Increasingly, a minority of courts are saying that jurors can take notes. Majority of jurisdictions, jurors can't ask questions to witnesses. Again, there's a trend, a minority of courts that are allowing jurors to actually, through the judge, ask questions to the witnesses. If a juror is confused, they think there's misconduct on the jury, they can, through the bailiff, submit questions to the judge, such as, I have a question about the definition of premeditation in a first-degree murder case, and I'm not quite certain what you said in the courtroom. Can you please give us clarification? And in that case, the judge might very well bring the jury back into the courtroom and give a further definition or explanation of some of the key factors. So the jury really doesn't directly interact with the people, the witnesses, the the lawyers, the defense, the prosecution. If they do have questions or if they are going to interact, they really do it through the proxy of the judge or some other representative of the court system. Yeah, and that's very much different from the original idea of the jury, which was very active and very much took part in the proceedings. As you say, in a majority of jurisdictions, exactly, it is a very passive jury. They sit there, they take in the trial, but they can't take notes, they can't ask questions. But at the end of the day, it is the 12 men and women who are tasked with deciding guilt versus innocence. I am really surprised that in in some jurisdictions, juries aren't allowed to take notes um, because some court cases and trials are really long and there's a lot of information that's thrown at you. How How is someone supposed to be able to remember the information accurately enough and with enough detail to be able to look back on it later uh, in order to, to render a verdict. That, that surprises me that in some places, juries aren't allowed to take notes. Yeah, and it's actually a majority of places. And I completely agree with your perspective. It's sort of like telling students in a classroom they can't take notes during a lecture. Now, what they do get is during deliberations, they can ask for different exhibits to be shown to them during deliberations. They can ask for the transcript of testimony by certain witnesses, so they can get that recall. But the problem is, as you say, if a trial is a week or a couple weeks long, they might not even remember what's important to remember. And therefore, 
it is really difficult for them after the fact to try to piece everything together without anything in the way of their own documentation. Since we're talking about memory and our ability to be able to remember things through court cases, I do want to talk about a common theme in both serial and undisclosed, which is how unreliable witness statements and testimony can be, and how memory can be influenced by outside forces, how statement, how a statement about what happened and what someone remembers can change throughout the investigation and the court case. Um, it seems like in the Said case, a lot of the outcomes of the case depended on what people remembered or didn't remember about what would at the time have been a pretty average day. And in some situations, that changes. In some situations, people remember something happening on day A, but it looks like it probably happened on day B, or maybe day Z. Um, and do we see this as a big problem in most court cases? Or was the amount that this became a problem in the Said case really unusual? Oh, we see it every day in courtrooms across the country and across the world, that maybe is the biggest lesson of a podcast like Serial. It is that eyewitness identification and eyewitness testimony in general is a lot less reliable than we've been led to believe. And as you say, there's often several complicating factors that take place in a case. Many times witnesses aren't interviewed until days or in Adnan's case weeks later. The interrogation is done by police officers who are working for the state and they often have certain biases and they might intentionally or unintentionally be feeding information about the case that leads to different answers. They might be giving positive affirmations or negative responses to certain information that could cause the person to, in fact, change their memory. I mean, there have been cases, there was the Ronald Cotton case in North Carolina where a woman identified her rapist and was given positive affirmation. And even when her actual rapist was presented to her years later, right in front of her, she thought that it was, in fact, Ronald Cotton. That's the same thing that happened in the Making a Murder case, the, the Stephen Avery case that's the subject of the Netflix documentary, where someone who was right there being attacked by the assailant in the case and based upon their own issues with memory, possible misconduct by the police, when they're presented with the actual perpetrator of the crime, they are unable to recognize that this is the person who was committing this horrible crime against them. So if we know that witness testimony is so problematic, why do we rely so heavily on it? Um, is it just in cases like the Adnan Saeed case where there wasn't a lot of physical evidence that we could point to or factual evidence that we could point to? So witness testimony is all we have? Or do we tend to rely on witness testimony even sometimes when there is other evidence available that we could be pointing to or using more of? Yeah, well, that's interesting in the sense that it does point to another misconception that a lot of people have from TV shows like NCIS and CSI. And that is in certainly a majority and a significant majority of cases, there isn't physical evidence. And in those cases, certainly you couldn't have a prosecution without eyewitness testimony. That's often a huge component of the case. Now, even when there is this forensic evidence that tends to implicate or exculpate the defendant, eyewitness testimony is still a huge part of the case. And, you know, you can't prevent 
an eyewitness from testifying, it's certainly something that can be reliable. And in many cases, it does hold up to scrutiny. But yeah, I mean, it is definitely something that jurors should be aware of that when they're sitting there in the courtroom and being told quite confidently, I, on a clear summer day, saw the person at the defense table shooting the victim, that it's not necessarily true, especially in cases where it's a cross-racial identification. Studies have shown that they are really lacking in reliability. And there's reason to maybe even give a jury instruction, giving jurors information about the issues that take place in these types of cases. In a situation like that, is it up to defense counsel or the prosecution to point out where some of the research shows that this is unreliable? Would that even be considered relevant to a case where witness testimony, like you say, in a a cross-racial eyewitness testimony that's been found to be more unreliable? Would the the defense or the prosecution be able to bring that up, that research up and say, hey, look, this, you know, we need to put this in its proper context? Yeah, that is up to the defense counsel in the case to make the argument to the judge that he should give an instruction or that an expert should be able to testify. And that gets to the issue of the standards for admitting expert evidence in a case in the courts. And in the U.S., we go into this a bit in the podcast, but there's two different tests that courts use. One is the old Fry test from a case called Fry out of D.C. back in the 19-teens, I believe. And that's a case that basically says you can have expert testimony or evidence if that testimony is based upon techniques or technologies that have general acceptance in the relevant expert community. Now, the test in that case was a lie detector test. The court found lie detectors didn't have general acceptance, and therefore the evidence didn't come in. So the Fry test governed for several decades. And then in the 90s, the Supreme Court said, we're not happy with that test. And you could imagine a few reasons why they were unhappy. One is the test could let in certain junk science because it's a very much insular test. If the arson investigation community says we have these standards for determining whether this was arson or an accidental fire, then they might accept that. But external scrutiny can and has shown that some of those techniques like looking at accelerant patterns are unreliable. So what Daubert said was, at the federal level at least, and now in several states, we're going to replace the Fry test with the concept of judge as judicial gatekeeper. And that judge basically will apply several factors. They list five in the opinion, but they're not exhaustive, and other factors can be considered. But they're things like, has the technique or technology been subjected to peer review or publication? What's the rate of error? Are there controls that can be used in the testing? And so basically, to your point, If we have defense counsel and they want to have an expert come in and testify, here are the flaws with cross-racial identification. They have to convince the judge, depending upon the courtroom, under the Fry test or the Daubert test, that this testimony is both reliable and that it's relevant, that it goes to issues that are essential in resolving guilt or innocence in the case. So in a matter like this, where there is uh, some some research pointing uh, at uh, the reliability of a witness, um, would it be up to the judge to figure out whether or not that's junk science or real science? It would, and that's one of the big criticisms of Daubert, which is to say that judges, of course, have a terrific legal background, but they often lack the scientific background. And there are training sessions that judges attend, but some people say that's almost worsening the problem because it gives them a false sense of confidence as opposed to having true scientific background. But you're exactly right. 
in a, a Daubert jurisdiction where the judge is gatekeeper, it is up to this legally trained judge to hear arguments by the prosecution and defense as to whether the studies on cross-racial identifications are satisfying the scientific method and whether the jury should hear this or whether it falls on the side of junk science. Is there a better way to do this or is this sort of the best the way that we've got right now? There is another way. It's something that's rarely used by judges. This is in the U.S. There is Federal Rule of Evidence 706, and basically every state has a counterpart. And that says that in a given case with technical issues, the judge can appoint his own expert. And that expert can give consultation to the judge on the issues in the case. And so, for instance, there was a case involving a lawsuit against the manufacturer of breast implants based upon leakage that was taking place. And the judge in that case was sort of hearing perspective testimony and was trying to decide whether to allow the jury to hear it about the science behind it. And the judge in that case decided, I'm going to appoint my own expert. That expert's going to advise me as to the reliability of the science, and therefore I can render that decision. Now, as I say, that rule exists, and some judges make use of it, but really the vast majority of cases, judges do not rely upon Rule 706. So when we're talking about including um, things like science in the courtroom, where is the place for new or cutting edge science that may not necessarily be proven, but it's might be because it's a more novel way or a unique new way of approaching it? Yeah, the answer is, if we go back to that dichotomy I drew before, there is that old Fry test, which is very much a stodgy conservative test. And I can give one example of this is that R. Kelly, the uh, singer who was charged engaging in sexual acts with a minor, there is, if you follow this case at all, this videotape showing this interaction and there's not a clear picture of the individual's face. And so what the prosecution tried to do in that case was to use not facial recognition, but vein pattern recognition. So basically, you were clearly able to see on the video the vein pattern on the back of the person's hand. And in fact, in parts of Asia, this vein pattern analysis is used and it's treated almost as well as fingerprints. But in Illinois, the old Fry test is still used and it was a fairly simple analysis for the court to say, there's vein pattern analysis. It doesn't have general acceptance in the U.S. It has some acceptance overseas and therefore per se, we're going to deem that inadmissible. Other jurisdictions that follow the Daubert test, there is uh, what's used in some countries in Europe is not fingerprint, but earprint. So if you have, say, a phone or a wall, you can dust that and get an earprint. And in Europe, they say that this is close to as reliable as a fingerprint. In a Dauber jurisdiction, a court might look at that and say, well, on the one hand, it doesn't have general acceptance yet in the US, but here is some peer-reviewed publications. I can see how they used controls as in fingerprint studies to show a low rate of error. And under the more liberal Daubert test, the judge as gatekeeper can look at it and say, this is an emerging technology. It doesn't have general acceptance yet, but I think it's reliable enough to admit in this case to show that the defendant used this phone. And when we dusted for prints, 
that tends to match with what we believe to be the case. If something is allowed into a court case, and then later on that science or technology it turns out to not be appropriate or not be relevant or not work in the way that we thought it did, is that grounds for appeal later on? Yeah, and this is something that's going on right now is that hair analysis. There was uh, a study that came out last summer that showed significant problems where I think it was like 95% of cases we had false positives where they were claiming that hairs found at the crime scene belong to the defendant and this has now been discredited. There have also been problems in matching bullets to guns. There was a study that was done a few years ago that showed significant issues in that front with ballistics testing. Yeah, and absolutely. If you are someone who has been convicted based upon science that's been discredited, whether it be gunshot residue, whether it be bite mark analysis, whether it be a faulty arson investigation, that is something that can lead to the reopening of a case. It's really frustrating to me to think that we try cases and we present evidence and we analyze evidence in a courtroom to the best of our ability at the time, potentially, and that can hugely impact somebody's life, both uh, the person who maybe was wrongly convicted, <clears throat> but also the person who maybe goes free, uh, who shouldn't have. And that, you know, five, ten years later, it turns out that that science that we used or tried to to use is false or that it can't be used in that way. And, and that must be incredibly frustrating to the people it affects. But for me as an outsider, having never been involved in a court case, it's frustrating for me as well, because I, I want to use as much science as possible if we're going to talk about uh, convicting somebody of a crime. But at the same time, we also need to to respect and remember that sometimes the science we're so sure about right now isn't necessarily going to be something we're sure about in 10 years. Yeah, well, it's very interesting because I think you note both sides of the issue. And a lot of people, I think, going into the courtroom as jurors think of it as, well, this is independent science and science is fact, it's objective, and therefore it either points toward guilt or innocence. But if you actually look at forensic science, forensic science that's used in the courtroom to a large extent was developed by J. Edgar Hoover here in the U.S. as part of the FBI's attempts to increase the efficacy of prosecutions, and it was not at all independent of the litigation system. It was developed post hoc and basically trying to develop techniques and technologies that could be used to prosecute individuals. And a lot of that same forensic science that he spearheaded is the same forensic science that is now being called into question. And that's interesting because the Daubert case that I mentioned before, that was about Bendectin, a drug, and the testing was done in a case where humans claimed to cause birth defects and the testing was done on animals. And a big reason why ultimately that evidence was excluded was because they found that testing was done not independent of litigation, but in fact that it was done for the purposes of litigation. And if you look at, again, the vast majority of forensic science used in the courtroom, that really wasn't developed independent of litigation. It was designed by J. Edgar Hoover to use in the courtroom. You're tuned in to Science for the People, and we'll be right back with more from Colin Miller after this. 
Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Colin Miller, an associate professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law, a host of the Undisclosed podcast, and blogger at Evidence Prof Blog. So I do want to talk a little bit about lawyer strategy in a courtroom because I found and have always found this part of court cases to be really fascinating. Um, it seems like a lot of what makes a strong case is the strength of the story. Uh, the evidence is important at making that story seem likely or plausible, but it, it seems like the lawyer's ability to create a strong narrative and uh, quote unquote sell the narrative to the jury is a big part of making a convincing case. So how much does the storytelling ability of a lawyer gain them in the courtroom? Yeah, and this is interesting because there are two primary models that academics tend to apply to the litigation of a case. One is the narrative or the storytelling theory, and one is sort of the Bayesian model. Bayesian model basically says that we think about jurors as almost calculators, and they take in each piece of evidence, and you know they might be leaning 60% towards guilty. They hear an alibi witness. They weigh that. Maybe now they're... 50%. And then they hear an eyewitness who says they saw the defendant and they move back up to 75%. But I think what most people tend to endorse now is the narrative or the storytelling theory that it's not so much about individual pieces of evidence. It's not the trees, it's the forest. And that an attorney who is able to give the best narrative of what they believe happens is most convincing to the jurors. And I would tend to, to endorse that. I mean, certainly you need someone who is able to understand the technical minutiae, make the correct objections, really dig into cross-examination. But in the end, what it comes down to is when the jurors sit down at the end of the day to decide what to do, they're looking at the overall narrative and they're saying, what narrative is the most convincing? Is it a narrative where this defendant killed the victim? Is it a narrative where the person was uninvolved? Is it maybe some narrative we're unaware of? So as a defense lawyer going into a case, what is your strategy in something like a murder case where the facts aren't necessarily clear? Is it to try and just poke holes in what the prosecution presents as the narrative? Or is it to try and create your own alternative narrative as to what might have happened? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that, again, very much depends on some of the variables of the case. If it's a case where there's no clear alternate suspect, then it sort of goes more toward your poking holes theory, where what you're trying to do is not necessarily present a counter narrative. It is to tear down the state's narrative and try to show the flaws, the gaps, etc. If it's a case where there are one or more viable alternate suspects, then it might very well be a counter narrative where you are trying to tell the jury, listen, the prosecution claims my client's the one who committed this crime. Well, here's a counter narrative. Here's someone else with motive, means, and opportunity. And at the very least, that gives you some reasonable doubt as to whether my client's guilty. 
A witness may have good information or good recollection of something that happened that's relevant to the case. But at the end of the day, I guess if we don't believe what the witness is saying, that we think they might be lying or we don't believe that they're trustworthy or they might be lying or that they're uh, if they're trustworthy, how much does our opinion of the witness change the way a jury will weigh that witness's testimony? Uh, pretty much studies have shown it has a huge effect. And then studies have also shown that people are terrible at judging the character of a witness and being able to tell who is lying and who tells the truth. It's interesting because, as I said before, back in the Fry case, polygraph lie detector evidence was deemed inadmissible. And in fact, there's the the Sheffer case that was decided, uh, I guess, a couple decades ago now, where, again, the Supreme Court said polygraph evidence is unreliable. And in one of the opinions in the case, Justice Clarence Thomas said, we can't have lie detector evidence because the jury is the lie detector. And that's true in the sense that at the end of the day, it comes down to does the jury tend to believe the prosecution's witnesses more or do they tend to believe the defense witnesses more? And again, the problem is if you look at the studies, peer reviewed studies where you have jurors, not real jurors, but jurors in a study, and they are given people who are lying and telling the truth that while we think we're pretty good judges of character and who's telling the truth that, in fact, we really have no idea as to the veracity of witnesses. Do savvy lawyers try and use some of our preconceptions about who is likely to lie and who is likely to tell the truth sort of against us if we're on a jury? Would they try and present someone that maybe they know to be more unreliable in a way that implies they're more reliable than they are? Yeah, I mean, that's, again, if we go back to the prosecution of Adnan Sayed and we have this witness, Jay Wilds, and you have the prosecutor in the case basically front-ending it in his opening statement by saying, we don't choose our witnesses. This is uh, a case of a murder. And in fact, the reason why Adnan sought out Jay Wilds to help him in the murder was because he's exactly the type of person that he would need to approach as opposed to sort of the choir boys, the magnet school students that he associated with on a regular basis. And so you should expect that he might have had some issues with the law and you might expect some contradictions in his testimony. The very fact that he has a character that might lead you to distrust him is exactly why he was sought out by the defendant in this case. Uh, Looking at the defendant. Um, how much of a handicap do you have starting from the position of you are charged with murder? I mean, we're told presumed innocent until proven guilty, but there seem to be a lot of people who think they wouldn't have charged him if he didn't do it. So presumably the people on a jury aren't immune to this idea or this uh, bias. Yeah, nor are the witnesses in the case. So again, if we return to the non-said case, One of the witnesses was Debbie, who was a classmate of Adnan. And there's a transcript of her interview. It's it's on our undisclosed website. And the police are interrogating her. And she notes how at first she thought that Adnan was innocent. And then they asked, do you still think that? And her response is, no, I think he's probably guilty now. And they ask why. And basically her one response is, well, he was arrested. And if he was arrested, you must have had good reason to arrest him. And so here's someone, she was a good friend of him for years. And just simply based upon the fact that he was arrested, she changes from thinking that he's innocent to thinking that he 
possibly or probably committed the crime. If we look just at murder cases uh, for the sake of having this be slightly simpler, do we have any idea how many people are arrested for murder, but ultimately are not a person who is convicted or who is ultimately not the person likely responsible for the crime? Yeah, well, it's interesting. This sort of gets to uh, the bigger picture, which is another misconception that many would have about the justice system, which is that in basically 95% of cases, they are finally adjudicated not by a trial, but by a guilty plea. And that's because plea bargaining has become the dominant way of resolving of cases in the American justice system. And that's partially based upon the overburdened public defender system. And as I sort of expressed a bit before, it's really tough to fight charges that are brought against you. We discussed before the amount of preparation, the amount of expert witnesses you often need. And that's just simply that something that's not feasible for the vast majority of defendants. And so you're really only dealing with I mean, certainly some cases charges are dropped before we have a guilty plea or a trial. But for those cases where the charges are not dropped, you're only dealing with about 5% of cases where it's actually going to trial. And in 95% of cases, you have the person pleading guilty. And that's sort of some of the work the Innocence Project has done to show that there can be false confessions and science can be faulty. And oftentimes DNA evidence shows that someone, even someone who confessed to a crime is actually not guilty of that crime. In order to get someone to take a plea deal, is there, do they just have to be convinced that the case against them is strong enough that they won't make it through a court trial? Um, is there like a, a standard that something has to adhere to in order to uh, make a plea deal something that's on the table? Or is it really at this point just a matter of there's not enough time and people uh, to be able to take everything to court and that a lot of people just simply don't have the funds, uh, personal funds to be able to have their own court battle? Yeah, I mean, the the answer from a legal perspective is if a person is entering a plea deal, the judge asks that defendant questions that are seeking to ascertain whether the guilty plea is knowing, voluntary, intelligent, and based on an adequate factual predicate. Now, in terms of what actually happens leading up to that, as you say, it could be any number of reasons. It could be that there is strong evidence against this defendant and that's because he's guilty. Or it could be that certainly there's been some evidence gathered, but you have an indigent client who has a public defender who has dozens of other cases. And the prosecutor is saying, look, on the one hand, if this case goes to trial, you could be convicted and given the death penalty or life imprisonment. Here's a plea deal. Why don't you plead guilty to a lesser included offense, maybe involuntary manslaughter, and we'll either recommend or we will ask the judge to impose a sentence of maybe 5, 10, 15 years incarceration. That's a substantial discount. And you can imagine from the perspective of even an innocent defendant who thinks, I can't fight these charges. I can't take it to trial. I can't have a way to ensure I'm going to be found not guilty, you can see why that discount would push their hand and lead them to accept the deal. And certainly in a place in certain states in the U.S. where the death penalty still very much is on the table. Yeah, I think at last count, there's 19 states where it has been outlawed, but that still leaves 31 states where you can be given the death penalty. And 
in the federal system uh, for federal crimes, federal capital offenses, you can certainly be given the death penalty. For the types of cases that would generally be qualified for the death penalty in places where the death penalty no longer exists, has there been a reduction in the amount of pleas? Has the abolishment of the death penalty in certain states changed how many people ultimately end up pleading out? Not as far as I'm aware. So, for instance, Zidane's case took place in Maryland, and there was initially a moratorium on the death penalty, and then eventually Governor O'Malley outlawed it. And as far as I can tell from looking at the statistics, there has not been any reduction in the entry of guilty pleas as opposed to taking cases to trial. One of the features of the Saeed case that you get into on the podcast is how the police really zeroed in on Adnan as a suspect very early on um, and didn't really seem to investigate any other possibilities. Is that common in police investigations? Yeah, I mean, it's just like anyone else. The police are subject to confirmation bias. And you'll see it in any number of cases where they get an initial suspect, sort of put the blinders on, they hone in on that subject because there are a lot of pressures. They might be political pressures, they might be pressure from the public, but basically their goal is to close the case. And you will see articles where, and people talking about it in presentations. My clearance rate is 90%. It's 95%. That is their goal. And obviously, the goal should be trying to figure out the truth. But yeah, you can certainly see in many of the cases handled by the innocence projects across the country, it is something where they got their suspect, they honed in, as they got contradictory evidence, they ignored it as they got corroborating evidence, they certainly adopted it. When there were inconsistencies and rough edges in some of the statements given, they tried to smooth those out and sand over them. And yeah, I mean, it is it is something that is very difficult because there are these pressures from all different directions that are affecting the prosecutors and the police officers in a case, and they can, in given cases, lead to injustice. One of the things that I was consistently surprised about when listening to Undisclosed was how little paperwork and recording was kept at various points during uh, this particular investigation, and that certain people at certain points were actually instructed not to record data or write anything down. Um, is that something that's common? I, I feel like there should be a law where everything must be written down, where there's there's a mandate for paperwork in these particular cases. Yeah, and that's, that's a trend. So for instance, one thing was that, as I noted before, we had Jay Wilds, this witness, being interviewed several times. And in addition to the interviews, there were call, uh, so-called called pre-interviews, which were not transcribed. And many jurisdictions now require the transcribing and or recording of all interrogations, including pre-interviews. So there is a trend toward that, which is nice. Yeah, in this case, and this is something that defense counsel brought up during the discovery, the exchanging of documents phase in the trial, which was that it seemed at the time that Baltimore had this policy where they were telling experts, the people who exhumed the body when it was found, don't record their findings because if you do, we have to turn them over to the defense. And that's something that unfortunately takes place in too many jurisdictions. Now, there certainly are jurisdictions actually going in the opposite direction and they have open file discovery where 
far from trying to hide the ball from the defense, they open their entire files to the defense and say, here's everything we have. But it's very much a jurisdiction by jurisdiction thing where some are great about recording things and make sure everything's in the record and turn it over. And others are basically trying to prevent the defense from seeing as much as possible. When we're talking about a jurisdiction, are we talking about a city or a county or a state? I'm, I'm a little bit unclear as to what a jurisdiction actually is in the U.S., yeah, and that, that can be a few different things. So for instance, when I mentioned the open file discovery, that might be North Carolina, the entire state saying for every city or county that is handling a case, they have to have this policy. And then there can be other things when I'm saying jurisdictions where there's not a statewide policy. And so for instance, there is Baltimore City and Baltimore County. They both had some role to play in this case, Baltimore County in the missing persons investigation, and then Baltimore City in the actual prosecution of the case. And where there's not a statewide policy, there might be difference in practice where the jurisdictions being these two different, you know, county versus the city. So how what what are the police and the prosecutors required to turn over to the defense? I mean, it sounds like there are some different rules depending on what jurisdiction you're in, but that there must be some rules that are common between all places in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. So there is a Supreme Court opinion, Brady versus Maryland, which applies in every single jurisdiction. That says under the due process clause, prosecution has to disclose material exculpatory evidence to the defense in advance of trial. That's evidence that tends to point toward the defendant's innocence. There is the federal Jenks Act, which many states have a counterpart to, which says that you have to turn over prior statements by prosecution witnesses. Uh, oftentimes, courts order that before trial, but at the latest, after that witness has testified in direct examination. Beyond that, it very much is a jurisdiction by jurisdiction statutory law that decides discovery. So, for instance, at the federal level, it's Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 16, and then many states have versions that are similar. And that'll say different things such as you need to give disclosure of the names of expert witnesses, a summary of their testimony, a copy of their report. You you need to turn over information such as trial exhibits, photographs, physical evidence, etc. You intend to introduce a trial. But in that category, the statutory, it's very much what that jurisdiction has on the books for their laws that says what they have to turn over. What types of information don't they have to turn over to the defense? Yeah, they don't have to turn over if we sort of, again, break it down by jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So if we're taking Brady off the table, we're taking Jenks off the table, you could have well, first we'll say, you know, this is, this is something that applies across the board is work product. So anything where it is the impressions of, say, the prosecutor and talking to a witness and they're sort of developing their trial strategy, that's something that doesn't have to be turned over. If it's something where, for instance, the pre-interview doesn't need to be recorded, we might have a non-recorded statement by a witness for the prosecution under the Jenks Act and many statutory laws, that wouldn't need to be turned over, despite the fact that that pre-interview might vary drastically from the transcribed statement given by the witness. So I also want to talk a little bit about Crime Stoppers tips, because this episode, I think, was one of the most memorable for me um, to listen to. 
uh, and something that I really hadn't thought about before. I think everybody's seen uh, some form of the Crime Stoppers tip line. If you have a tip, call this number. Uh, if you have any information, call this number. Um, and you guys talk about in an episode of Undisclosed how often people who call in tips or information about a case ultimately sometimes become suspects and in some cases are actually convicted of some part of the crime. How often does this happen? Yeah, it's tough to say because one of the roadblocks we have hit in our investigation is trying to get information regarding the Crime Stoppers tip in this case. Crime Stoppers was started in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I believe in the 70s. It's a way for a person to anonymously make a call to a non-governmental organization where they can report information without fear that the public will learn their name. And it's sort of an incentive for people to come forward and report crimes because there is a financial benefit if your information leads in some jurisdictions to an indictment, meaning a grand jury says the case can go forward to trial in other jurisdictions, a conviction. But yeah, the thing about Crime Stoppers is you are anonymous to the public, but you are not anonymous to the police department. And as you know, obviously, if a person is reporting, they have information about a crime that is not public information, that's a person of interest. And it can turn around and that person can be prosecuted for the crime. Uh, but again, the difficulty is this is something I'm really I'm trying to do some more research on and possibly do a paper on it because there is so much opacity with Crime Stoppers and trying to figure out exactly, you know, statistically, how often are chips reliable, how often are they unreliable, and then what you ask is a great research question which is how often does the tipster become the suspect and ultimately the arrestee, the person who's convicted, and there's just not great public data on that. Yeah, because it, it seems like a totally relevant question when you think there's money being offered for information, and if someone's in need of some cash, it can seem like a really easy way to try and get some money. I mean, when you're not sort of, when you don't have any knowledge or experience about the ways this can go, if you don't think about it too deeply, it seems like, well, what's the harm? I call in. I, I say, you know, some piece of general information and maybe I get some money out of it. Um, but I don't know that there's enough understanding in the public of how, how important it is not to do that just for your own safety and well-being uh, necessarily. And yeah, that just whole conversation in Undisclosed really surprised me and shocked me. And it certainly made me think differently about um, how I might react if I felt I had information about a crime or if I felt I had information that might be important to an investigation. I don't know how, whether or not I would be interested in coming forward with that information now. I would be so worried about becoming the target of the investigation. Yeah, and what you're saying, it raises the bigger point, which is what overall is the efficacy of Crime Stoppers? So on the one hand, we want to have a system whereby people who fear retribution can come forward anonymously and can report a crime. And so for that, it makes sense to have a carrot, to have this financial reward and have them come forward. On the other hand, which we've highlighted on the podcast, Podcast. In addition to people who know nothing and maybe implicate themselves, we have people who are making things up in order to get that financial reward. And yeah, I mean, if you're going to assess whether we should even have crime stoppers, you would want to have a study that does a cost benefit analysis and says, in X percent of cases, we have tips that turned out to be false. 
And in Y percent of cases, we had tips that were reliable and, in fact, led to a judicious outcome. But again, there's just not that data where if you're trying to assess as a jurisdiction, do we get rid of crime stoppers or do we significantly modify the way that we operate it, some type of sabermetrics, you know, analytics to look into it. It's just there's so much opacity, you really can't dig in and and figure out with any meaningful data, whether these programs are actually helping or hurting the seeking of justice. So if a member of the public does feel they have important information about a crime or an ongoing investigation that they do want to report, um, whether or not they go through Crime Stoppers or just go to their local police department, but are concerned about becoming targeted in the investigation, um, what should they do? How should they go about providing this information or giving this information that could help solve a crime, um, but also not implicate themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's a really great question. And it's tough to say, because this goes back to what I mentioned before. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you certainly have an innocent person who really has no prior involvement with the criminal justice system. And obviously, that person, the advice would be to go and talk to the police and explain what they know. And possibly if they think they have any exposure to retain an attorney and to work through that attorney. But many times the people who are vital witnesses in the case are people with criminal records and they're people who have legitimate fears that if they come forward that they should um, possibly become implicated in the crime itself. And of course, the best advice in that situation would be to retain an attorney and to work with that attorney in dealing with the police. But at the same time, that's exactly the type of person who likely has financial pressures and is living paycheck to paycheck. And so the question becomes, if you're someone with a criminal record and you have knowledge about a crime and you're thinking about going forward, but you can't afford an attorney, what do you do? And that's part of the reason why a lot of people stay silent. And that, again, would be a big reason for Crime Stoppers, where you know not only is the person not asked to hire an attorney to deal with police, but there is a potential financial reward if they come forward with information. At the same time, that, again, leads to the quite real possibility that a person coming to Crime Stoppers is just seeking that payout and, in fact, is doing a false accusation. So if you're going to be questioned by the police, either you've given a tip or you have some information or they just sort of show up on your door or give you a phone call, is there something that people should know or should remember when they talk to the police? Uh, Is there something they should be prepared for? Should they, in any of these situations, just immediately, if they're able to, go and retain a lawyer to help them through these situations? I mean, what is the best piece of advice that you could give to someone who may become involved in an investigation, not necessarily the target, but maybe as a witness or um, as someone with uh, important information as part of it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's we have it here in the US. I think you have a version of it in Canada is you have the Miranda rights, which is that the police are trying to subject you to a custodial interrogation, you had the right to remain silent, you had the right to an attorney. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely the best advice I can give is if you feel like you have any type of exposure in a case, regardless of whether you have any involvement or not, and the police are seeking answers about information that could tend to in any way incriminate you, to simply at that point in time say you can't answer any further questions until consulting with an attorney. And there are ways that a person can get representation. But again, there are difficulties there is that 
in many jurisdictions, including Maryland, back in 1999, you didn't qualify for a public defender until you were charged with a crime. Uh, there are legal aid organizations. There are pro bono attorneys. There are ways to get some type of representation. So, yeah, I mean, the advice is to seek out an attorney. The problem is, is there a financially sound way that you can do so? Is there a, how much time do you have to find an attorney if you get called by the police and you're uncomfortable with speaking to them on your own, but you may not have the funds to be able to retain your own counsel and maybe you have to go through a third party or find someone who has a pro bono that you can use or something like that. How long do you have to actually find a lawyer to help you out with this? Well, the answer is from a legal perspective, you have unlimited time because you can persistently invoke the right to remain silent. You never have to answer those questions. In fact, even if you're prosecuted, you can invoke that Fifth Amendment privilege, not testify and the judge has to instruct the jury not to draw an adverse inference based upon your lack of testimony. Practically speaking, the question is obviously the prosecution is going forward, the police are doing their investigation, and from a pragmatic standpoint, what's the problem if you are a person of interest and for days or weeks you're refusing to answer questions? Well, of course, that's going to lead them to dig deeper into your history, your involvement, etc. So, you know, you have the incentive to try to make a statement as early as possible, but that can be difficult when, again, those financial pressures might prevent you being able to consult with an attorney. So if you had to leave people with one piece of advice on that front, what do you think you would say to them? Well, I mean, I think that the best advice is, and this goes back to what we were discussing before on the prosecution side, is if you have seen something and you have reason to believe that the police are going to be interrogating you is to document it. Make sure as close to the event as possible, you are making some type of record of what you observed that's less likely to be tainted by errors in memory, certain cognitive biases. And you could then definitely use that when you're being interrogated is that you have your reference, you have recorded this, and that's going to tend to lead to reliability and the police trusting what you have to say. So, Colin, just before we go, I'm interested to find out as someone who follows these types of cases, as someone who thinks about this a lot, uh, someone who works in the current justice system in the U.S., what do you think the current U.S. justice system does well and what do you think it does really badly? Well, what I think it does really poorly is it's sort of the what's been described as McJustice, the assembly line justice I mentioned before, and that's that. In 95% of cases, we have the processing of guilty pleas as part of plea bargains. And in 80% of cases, defendants are indigent. They have public defenders who are overburdened. It's 90% representation in capital cases. And that's just really a huge issue where we don't have what you would think of as the traditional adjudication of guilt or innocence. It is literally a public defender meeting with a client for a handful of minutes and reaching the decision, we have to plead guilty in this case, let's take the sentencing discount. In terms of what I think the system does well, I still am a proponent of the jury system. And I think that more often than not, when it goes to a jury trial, the jury gets it right. And I think that as compared to other systems you might see in other jurisdictions and other countries, 
having 12 unbiased men and women processing a case, a jury of your peers, people in the community hearing the case and hearing the evidence, I still, despite its flaws, its warts, uh, I believe the jury system is the best way to adjudicate cases. I think improvements can be made. I don't think that the jury system is perfect, but I do think that it is the best model out there for deciding guilt or innocence. Colin, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm definitely looking forward to what uh, you guys at the Undisclosed Podcast throw at us next. Sure. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Colin Miller, we will have links to both his blog and the Undisclosed Podcast website in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. And you can always find us on Facebook and Twitter and on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.